Good morning. It's uh, good to be here. I feel like I haven't been with you for about a month. I think it's just been a couple of weeks, but uh, I bring you greetings from. Uh, 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 yeah. It is good to be here, isn't it? <laughs> Harder for some of us than others, but uh, it's good to be here. I bring you greetings from brothers and sisters at uh, St. John's. Uh, Missionary Baptist Church. I was a couple weeks ago, and last week I was able to be up in New York with our daughter and son-in-law and the grand twins. Uh, but uh, it's great to be back home here at Blacknell. If you're a visitor here, we're glad that you are here too, and uh, grateful that we get to, to worship together this morning. We are making our way in our study of the life of Abram and Sarai, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 15. Listen again to God's word to us. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, Euphrates the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me start this morning with a mini-sermon. Just to be clear, spare you any disappointment, this this sermon will not be a mini-sermon, but let me start with a mini-sermon. Our text begins... After this, 
after this, after chapter 14 that we looked at last week when the four kings went to war against the five kings and the four kings were victorious and carried off the goods and provisions of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, including Abram's nephew Lot and all of his goods. After this, and after Abram and his 318 men pursued the victorious four kings and routed them in battle and rescued Lot with all of their goods, including their women and other people. And after this, and after the mysterious Melchizedek comes and blesses Abram and feeds him with bread and wine, and after the king of Sodom comes to Abram to thank him, and he offers Abram to keep all the goods they rescued as booty for his rescuing their people. This king of Sodom, and I, we don't know much details about it, but again, if we use our sanctified imagination, right? The king of Sodom, and the word that came to my mind is a word I don't use very often. The word that came to mind is the word smarmy, right? You know what the word smarmy means? And I looked it up, it means ingratiating or wheedling in a manner that is perceived as insincere or excessive. It's kind of like, do you ever have that kid at school who was mean to you all the time, who ignored you, wanted nothing to do with you until they found out that, I don't know, uh, you knew somebody important maybe, or maybe for, because you had something they wanted, they came, hey, Dave, how are you? Good to see you, good friend. How That's smarmy, right? That's, I think the king of Sodom, I think the king of Sodom probably had just really fat hands, right? You just see him offering this fat hand to Abram. Abram, right, with rings on every finger, right? Abram, keep the stuff, right? You can keep it. Keep the booty for yourself. Good old buddy, good old right friend, pal. And Abram refuses it, right? Refuses to receive any of the property. He wanted no part of being in debt or in any kind of relationship with this smarmy, wicked king of Sodom. After this, we're told, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Do not be afraid. You've just defeated the most powerful king and his three allies in the region. You've just rejected being allies with the king of Sodom and the axis of evil kingdoms he represents. And you did this with only 318 men. You know, so much for keeping your head down and just being a good neighbor. Who doesn't like Abram right now? Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. The Lord is saying to him, I am your shield. And the Hebrew word here is, is magan, corresponding to the blessing that Melchizedek gave when he said to Abram, the God most high has delivered. Migan is a Hebrew word. I am your magan, your shield, because I have delivered you, Migan, from your enemies. I am your shield who delivers your enemies into your hand. And not only that, but also, I am your very great reward. Abram just turned down a great reward, right? That the king of Sodom had offered to him. The Lord says, don't be afraid. I am your great reward. Abram refuses the booty and reward of the king of Sodom, and God promises to be his great reward. This is, I think, our mini-sermon. This is an apt description of the life we are called to. The smarmy, fat hand with rings on all the fingers, well-oiled, perfumed king of this world offers to us his booty. And it's right there in front of us, right? Abram can see all the sheep and donkeys and 
We can hear the sheep bleeding, the donkeys braying. We can calculate exactly how much we would gain by this. All it takes is a handshake and a willingness to be allies, to be friends, to be in debt to the world. Or we can say, no, thanks. That is a debt I don't want to repay. You can keep your booty and then receive God's promise of a very great reward. No, not a promise of a very great reward, but God's promise that he is your reward. This is our, our mini-sermon, right? Can we say no to the smarmy king of this world and the very tangible booty that he offers to us? And can we say yes to the Lord and his promise that he himself will be our reward? This God we cannot see who will reward in some future we don't know when. And I think we could take up the offering and sing a hymn and go home, right? Beautiful promises. I am your shield. You don't need to trust in Sodom and Gomorrah to be your allies. I will deliver you. I will be your reward. Abram hears these promises and doesn't respond by singing a hymn, but instead he responds saying, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. You see, a mini-sermon is not enough. It's not enough for Abram. It's not enough for us. It is not enough because life is not as simple as just believing God's promises over believing the world's promises. The story is more complicated than that because there is this detail of Abram and Sarai's barrenness. They left home when Abram was 75 years old and Sarai was 66. They left their family, their land, their security. They go on this journey to who knows where based on a promise that said the Lord would make of him a great nation. We don't know exactly how long it has been. In the next chapter, we're told, we are told that Abram is 86, so it could have been as long as perhaps 10 years, 10 years of wandering, of being a stranger, an immigrant, and after 10 years, their family is no bigger. There's a conflict of two realities. Yes, the reality of God's promise, but also the very real reality of their barrenness. And we face the same conflict. Maybe we're able to see clearly the seat and decay of accepting the promise from the world, this booty that the world offers. We receive, and we are able to receive God's promises to us. God's promises that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. God promises that the kingdom of God is here in our midst. God promises that we are a new creation, that we've been born again, born of the Holy Spirit. And yet, and yet, how many of us feel barren this morning? How many, is, how many of us, if we were honest, would have a hard time answering the question of how we have experienced the Holy Spirit at work in our lives this week? How many of us would confess that the sins you confessed this morning were the same sins you confessed last week or last year? How many, is, how many of us heard the news of the sexual abuse scandal in the Southern Baptist Church and we wondered how is it possible that people who claim to love Jesus and to revere his word could be so barren of the fruit of the Holy Spirit? How many of us heard the news about the Southern Baptist? We said, thank you, God, that I am not in a denomination like that. 
instead of beating our breasts and crying out, have mercy on us, Lord. How many of us heard about the shooting in Uvalde after the shooting in Buffalo, after the shooting in the Taiwanese Presbyterian Church in California, we thought, this will never get better. This will never end. How many of us have claimed the promise, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it? And we are still waiting for that child to return to the Lord. How many of us can identify with Abram and Sarai's barrenness? With us, Abram says, thanks for the promises, but I am not seeing this. And then thanks be to God. Notice how the Lord responds to Abram's honest confession. He restates the promise with more specificity. Your servant won't be your heir. Your son, your own blood and flesh will be your heir. He doesn't give him proof. He doesn't give him an argument. He only gives him his word. And, and this is an important and, and he gives him a vision, a sign. He says, look at the stars. Look at the stars. Can you count them? so shall your offspring be. In this conflict between our barrenness and God's promises, all we get is God's word and a vision. And don't you think every clear night, Abram could go outside and try and count all of his descendants? Because for at least 14 years, that's all Abram had. The memory of a promise and this vision of the stars. Verse 6 is one of the most important verses in all of Genesis. It's a key verse for us as Christian people and for us as Blacknell in this season of transition. All Abram got was God's word and a vision. And we're told that Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. God considered Abram righteous because Abram trusted the Lord's promise. As one scholar says in answering the question, what happened to Abram between verses 2 and 3 and verses 6, between this question, Lord, how could this be? And then being able to say that he believed, what happened? He says, Abram has now permitted God to be not a hypothesis about the future, but the voice around which his life is organized. God wasn't just a hypothesis for him, a theory that should be tested. But now he's a voice that gives purpose and direction to all of life. You'll find out next week that that doesn't mean Abram became righteous. He will continue to mess up and mess things up badly. But he believed the Lord's promise, and that made him righteous in God's eyes. Look with me then at verse 7. Because the Lord makes another promise, a big promise, a promise of the land. I will give you this land to take possession of it, he says. And Abram responds, again, much the same way as he did to the first promise. Sovereign Lord, how can I know? How can I know for sure that I will gain possession of it? He had heard this promise before, too, back in chapter 12. But at this current moment, he owns nothing, right? He is a nomad, an immigrant, a sojourner in the land. And then notice again God's response. He says, get a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, a young pigeon. God says to Abraham, I will cut a covenant with you. And so Abram does this 
bloody work of preparing an ancient covenant ceremony with God. Scholars tell us that in the ancient Near East, a king would make a covenant with his vassals, with those under his reign, and they could, he would do it by cutting animals in two. And the vassals then would walk between the halves of the carcasses of the animals. The form of the covenant included a list of requirements of what the king would do and then of what was required of his subjects. And the passing between the carcasses was a threat, a curse that said, let me be like these animals if I don't keep the requirements of this covenant. Abram slaughtered these animals. It would have been a bloody mess, right? Our own Stu Stulak pointed out this week that there was no modern electric table saw to sell these animals in half. This was done with a knife, a primitive knife, to cut these large, blood-filled animals in two. Abram would have been covered in blood. And then he waited. Waited long enough for birds of prey to gather. These birds of prey, which symbolize for us that this covenant comes under threat. But Abram chases them away. And finally, we are told in verse 12, as the sun was setting it, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And the Lord speaks. And the Lord says, know for certain, Abram, know for certain that your descendants will also be strangers and they will be mistreated and enslaved, but I will deliver them. This promise will be fulfilled, but it will not be a straight road. It will not be without hardship and suffering. Know this for certain. A word for us too, right? As God keeps his promises, yes, I will keep the promise, but it won't be a straight road. And then the Lord does a remarkable thing. He makes a covenant, right? The gods of the ancient Near East were notoriously capricious, right? The gods that Abram had grown up with in Chaldea were fickle. Human religion, right? The idolatry that was all around him was all about making sacrifices to, to convince these gods to be faithful to their worshipers because you couldn't trust them because they could change their mind in a moment. You never knew what these gods would do. But the Lord says, I am making a covenant with you, a certain promise that you can count on. The Lord will not change. He won't lie. Here is a rock upon which you can stand. And <laughs> this covenant makes no requirement of Abram. There's no, if you do this, then I will do that in this covenant. Only one party is making promises. God is making a promise, a covenant, and unilaterally he's saying, I will do this. And then he seals the covenant. Normally, again, the vassals would walk between the animal halves. But in verse 17, we're told that a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch pass between the halves. The smoke and fire represent the presence of the Lord. The Lord passed between the halves. The Lord is saying, let this be done to me if I don't keep this covenant. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. God keeps his covenant. We are faithless. We break that covenant. We don't trust his promises, but it is not we who are torn in two, but it is Jesus whose body is broken, whose blood is shed. So we might always know this for certain, that we can trust God's promises. As we walk together 
in this season of transition, what are the promises that God has made to us? What are the promises that God has made to us at Black Mountain? Here are a few. There are so many, but here are a few, right? One of the promises is that there is something that unites us that is greater than political party, right? The promise is not that we have to all think alike exactly in our politics. There is something that unites us that is greater than race. We don't all have to look alike. Something greater than class that unites us. Something greater than education level that unites us. God has promised that he wants to do a great work through us. God wants to do a great work through you, through each one of us. God has a great work for you. Not great as in you're going to make the headlines of the paper, but great for his kingdom. God has important work for each one of us to do, and important work for this congregation to do. God promises that his Holy Spirit is that work among us. That's a promise I can, there's some Sundays I, I, we prayed this morning for worship. We wouldn't just be playing church, right? We wouldn't just be going to, doing the things that you, people should do when you come to church, what pastors should do, because we believe the promise that the Holy Spirit is at work as we come together. There's the promise that our job is to simply obey God's word and then see what the Holy Spirit will do. That we are to walk in the way of Jesus, the way of sacrifice and obedience, and not to walk in the way of the world. The way the world that promises to be so successful, we use the world's means of power, of manipulation, of hatred, of violence. Those are impactful things. You can accomplish things with power, with violence, with hatred, right? Look how effective you could be. And we trust God's promise that if we just follow Jesus' way, the way of the cross, his Holy Spirit will do his work. As we were driving home from New York last Sunday, Kim was reading this book, and she started reading it out loud to me. It's a book I commend to you. It's uh, by a woman named Zane Asher. She's uh, Nigerian. She's uh, apparently now she is a uh, anchor on CNN uh, TV. I've not I've not heard of her before, but uh, she's written a book called "Where the Children Take Us," and it's a memoir of her mother, uh, this Nigerian woman, uh, and tells a story of how uh, when. Uh, Zane, the author, was young. Uh, her father was tragically killed in a car accident in Nigeria. They were, they were living in, in London, and they, his father had gone back to visit Nigeria, and while there, died in a, a car accident. So her mother was left with, she was pregnant with her fourth child, so they had to raise these four children by herself. And talks about the vision that uh, her mom had for her life, for, for Zane's life. And the vision that her mom had was that Zane would go to Oxford. She would attend Oxford University. Which is like going to, trying to go to Harvard, only harder apparently, right? Zane was a young girl and that was not her vision, right? She wanted to be with her friends. 
She wanted to know what the cool music was. She wanted to know the TV shows to talk about with her friends. And her mom had a different, had a greater vision for her life. And so it tells a story of how uh, her mom, who's ran a pharmacy all by herself, a one-person pharmacy, worked 12, over 12 hours a day. On Saturdays, she'd leave the house and say, you children, you may not watch TV because her two young daughters were watching TV to, to know the songs, to know the shows, so they could talk to their friends. But you may not watch TV because you need to be studying. She said, okay, Mom. And Mom would go off to work. And as soon as Mom was out of the house, they'd turn TV on right, and watch. And as mothers do, Mom knew that was happening, right? And so the next Saturday, mom went off to work. They went to turn on TV. Wouldn't turn on. And they looked. Maybe wasn't plugged in. They looked to see. And her mom had cut the power cord. You know, too, right? Well, so then she soon discovered, well, I can't watch TV, but I can be on the phone with my friends and find out, talk by talking to my friends. So she would spend hours talking with her friends on the phone. So finally her mom got rid of the phone. Didn't get rid of the phone. She replaced the phone. She went out and got a payphone, dragged it up the steps to the second floor, and put a payphone in the hallway and said, you can make phone calls. You just have to pay for them. She found out she kind of had nothing left to do but to read, right? And discovered she liked reading. In fact, she liked learning. In fact, her mom then had her visit Oxford, and Saint said she loved it. What an exciting place with people learning and the beauty of the place. And she really loved Oxford. But she was still a teenage girl and wanted to be with her friends. And so she started sneaking out at night after mom would go to bed, right? And as moms do, mom knew what she was doing. And we would wait up when she came home and say, where were you? And her punishment of her daughter was she made her then go with her the next day to Oxford. Say, this is what we are living for. This is what we are aiming at. This is our vision that we are sacrificing for. Right? That's what God offers to us. A vision of a greater way for us to live. Not better, much better than Oxford or whatever we could imagine. Every week, we gather here to be reminded of what that vision is, of the life that we are called to live. Here in the not perfect place of Black Dawn, right? But here at the table particularly, being reminded of the vision that God has for us. In our barrenness, we are reminded where we are going. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that indeed we are barren. Lord, we are not where we need to be, where we want to be. Lord, we pray that you would be our vision, that we would have a vision of who you are, of the kingdom you've called us to be, and that we would love and support one another in living into that vision, that purpose you have for us in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.